Hi everyone. In this episode, the elusive author and psychonaut Snoo Vogelbrinder takes us on a journey through the Australian plantscape. We give special emphasis to two of Snoo's favourite organisms, cacti and acacia. His connection with the environment is special. Snoo speaks of plants like a loving parent and refuses to pick favourites. For Snoo, all plants are special and wonderful and he advocates for the treatment of plants as more than simple drug containers. Snoo is author of the seminal text, Garden of Eden. Through a unique compilation of scientific evidence, anecdotal reports, obscure literature and personal bio-essays, this book is a core ethnobotanical database and reference, discussing around 1700 different genera. There are only around 500 copies of Garden of Eden ever printed, with individual copies now valued at several thousands of dollars amongst collectors. Enjoy. Hey, Snoo, thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me, Liam. Good to be here. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm being very excited to talk to you. Um, how, how's life? Oh, hectic. <laughs> Pretty good, but hectic, I guess. Um, you know, we're not burning down, um, so that's good. It's been a fairly quiet fire season where I am. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, it always just reminds me of Christmas time, the smell of smoke. It's a bit of a weird association. Yeah, it's like you're trying to relax, but there's this edge of panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I guess it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a, a different thing in Australia. The fire it kind of means a different thing to what it means in other countries, you know, because often it's what the environment wants, even if it's not what people want yeah i guess so i mean at least until recently you know because we've started getting mega fires that are so hot that they um don't really serve the ecological purpose that they used to um you know that should kill the seed bank rather than um helping it germinate yeah and is that just the result of there being not regular enough fires so there's just like too much of a build-up of um you know stuff that will burn really hot oh that's got something to do with it i mean you know the warming and drying is is um is is a big factor um certainly we need to catch up with learning about doing um proper burning practices because the way it's been done at the moment by um by parks people you know well-meaning but um they don't necessarily do it in a way that ecologically makes sense it's more about ticking a box of saying yes we've, we've burned this many square meters of land this year we've kept up to our quota um so they're not always picking the best places to burn or burning them at the right time really uh, you want to make sure that you're not uh, killing things before they've had a chance to set seed for example um, but also people have really bad practices when it comes to trying to be fire safe and they do things that actually make the landscape dry out more and have less ability to retain moisture. You know, when you just scrape up everything off the ground and put it in piles and burn it, you're, you're guaranteeing that that area is um, going to 
just continue to dry out more and more and become more fire prone. So even if there's not a lot of stuff on the ground, um, all the trees are just tend to dry. Um, <coughs> if you know, if you have a really bad fire, it's not going to make that much difference if there's some twigs on the ground and some leaf litter. Um, that's stuff you really want to keep so that it can um, encourage a good ecosystem to continue to thrive. You've got all the microorganisms and you know fungi and insects that um, break things down, turn them into soil, um, increase the moisture retention. So when you know, people just rake everything up and burn it, you're taking all of that away and you're removing the ability of the forest to keep itself moist. <coughs> mm, mm. I, uh, I'm always uh, impressed by your attention to, you know, the environment around you. Um, and I like I, I kind of makes me wonder, like what first brought your attention to plants and the environment? Because I feel like this this isn't all just book learn stuff. You know, I can I can see you're paying attention, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't always that way. When I was a kid, um, you know, my dad would talk about you know what a unique country we live in, and we should really value it. And um, I didn't really see it. <laughs> you know, we'd mm. um. We go out on family holidays. Mum and Dad might want to go for a bushwalk, and um, I would just want to sit inside and read. <laughs> um, it wasn't till I got a bit older, you know, as a teenager, my late teens, and I got curious about psychoactive drugs, um, particularly the natural ones. Um, started smoking a little bit of pot, and that's really what helped crack my interest. Mm. Um, I remember one particular day sitting stoned in a friend's backyard and just looking at the garden around me and, uh, just felt it was calling to me saying, Hey, you know, <laughs> um, let's be friends, <laughs> come and meet. There's a lot, a lot of secrets to learn here. Interesting stuff's going on just around, you know, just, just around the corner. And, um, yeah, I just really felt drawn to the natural world and that sucked me in. So it's really psychoactive drugs have been the the catalyst to really get me deeply into nature. Mm, so, I love that. I guess, yeah, I'd, I'd call myself a deep ecologist in the sense that it's just a natural thing rather than something that I've um, learned academically. <laughs> you know, mm. it's a it's a true calling. Um, so yeah, I feel compelled to do what I can to look after nature as well as learn as much as I can about it. Both the you know scientific sense and the mystical sense. It's something that we're we're embedded in. You know, it's what it's what enables us to even be alive. So you know, for anyone to ignore that or treat it lightly seems just weird to me. Yeah, totally, totally. But but you did mention that you were kind of re reading was a passion for you before your passion for plants, and I definitely yeah. feel like uh, your your awareness and attention to literature as well as you you know your your awareness and attention to the plants around you i, I think they're both kind of they, they strike me as you know notable things about you what was your like pathway into the literature like well you know as i said before um yeah smoking pot was was a trigger for me and getting interested in nature but also getting interested in psychoactive plants you know that same day sitting in my friend's garden um um part of the thing that drew me in was was thinking um well here i am enjoying this 
this cannabis, but um, what other things are out there that I don't know anything about that could also have interesting effects on the mind? And, um, you know, from a young age, I, I had a spiritual inclination, I guess, and um, I, I, I just felt that this was another way into that that was um, more direct than going to church or something like that. Hmm. Um, so it, it, it fulfilled a number of urges on my part you know there's the intellectual curiosity there's the just a just a feeling of connection to nature but also um a curiosity about anything that might give a different mental perspective for me to um delve into the mysteries of the universe and existence So where to after cannabis then? Now you're you're open okay. to this new yeah. kind of interest. Oh, my school library had some good books on drugs that I quite enjoyed. There was an old book on marijuana that I used to repeatedly borrow from the library. Um, <laughs> just got me really, really curious. But um, one really good book they had, which actually was a was partly a reason for me choosing to go to the high school or rather the tech school that I went to back then was, um, was, was the library and they had a really good book called From Chocolate to Morphine by Dr. Andrew Will. Classic. Yeah, that was an excellent introduction into that world. Um, it gave a bit more info than more basic stuff because, um, yeah, really I, I started off with looking up various drugs in Encyclopedia Britannica at the school library. And, yeah, they'd tell you a little bit, but you didn't know how accurate it was. Um, and they didn't give you further references to chase up. But from chocolate to morphine was probably the, the first really good introduction into that world. And um, being a curious person, it just ballooned from there, I guess. Have you um, read the book that's come out after Shulgin's passing? I think it was um, based on a lecture series and annotated by Keeper Trout. Have you seen that? The Nature of Drugs. I haven't seen that yet, no. Oh, well, well Chocolate to Morphine is actually the textbook that he recommends. Um, yeah, it's, it's well worth a read. Oh, good. Yeah, Andrew Wheel is a little bit controversial for some people because um, I think he was one of the people who complained about Leary and co back in the days when they um, got booted out of, uh, I don't recall if it was Harvard or whatever university they were at when they were giving psychedelics to undergrads. Oh, right. Um, Dr. Andrew Will was one of the people who sort of dobbed them in. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, he, that was a long time ago. He was pretty young then. Um, and personally, I'm not a fan of Leary. I think he was pretty irresponsible and egotistical in the way he did a lot of things. But um, yeah, I'm not sure that dobbing him into the the higher ups was the best thing to do. But um, <laughs> anyway, those are the facts. Yeah, yeah, I think it tends not to be uh, the best move to tell on others. But if I recall the politics around that, I think there was some at least genuine concern for harm. I think was Leary being quite irresponsible or, or with oh, you know yeah, distributing. Leary was always being responsible he was, <laughs> <laughs> was not the most responsible guy um a lot of people you know blame him for the the way things were cracked down on but um i think that probably would have happened sooner or later anyway if it weren't for him um you know it, it's, it's something that was inevitable but the way he he promoted things um to the world 
yeah, I think sometimes people need to take a step back and think, how is this going to look to other people, especially people who are really straight, who have no idea what we're talking about? How does it look to them? And it's, it seems pretty clear that, um, you know, what he was doing scared the crap out of everyone. It probably led to a lot of really irresponsible use as well, um, it's by um, not really mentioning any potential downsides and acting like, you know, this stuff was all just 100% awesome and um, was going to do nothing but help. Yeah, I think that's definitely a bit of a psychedelic hype going around in the mainstream media at the moment with, uh, you know, a bit of overexcitement of what these might mean as medicines. Absolutely. And of course, too, some people are trying to take the actual psychedelic element out of it, <laughs> and um, which I don't think is going to work. Um, yeah, people are still pretty uncomfortable about some of the implications of psychedelics and what they can do to people's consciousness. Um, um, you know, living in a capitalist, materialistic world, um, those sorts of insights are not really welcome. Um, so it's understandable some people might want to strip away that element. But on the other hand, the, um, the, I think people are partly motivated by trying to make these things safer and they think, well, if you take out the trip and get left with the benefits, that could be a good thing because not everyone can handle a psychedelic experience or even some people that think they can, that eventually they will have an experience that is um, more than they bargained for. It might leave them uh, very unsettled or disturbed. Well, it's like the drug design is largely driven by this pharmaceutical industry and people, are, yeah. you can see the, the appeal of, a, of something like that, at least from the perspective of an insurance company, you know, who have all this kind of, you know, negative fear around, around psychedelics and to think that that might not be there. I, I can see why they might be, see that as kind of a, a safer pathway potentially, but I, I do wonder yeah. if, if it'll, you know, play out like that. Yeah, in terms of deep therapy, I think removing the trip from the psychedelic is, is really the, the barking up the wrong tree. But um, I think there's still potential for useful medicines to be developed that could have you know minimum or no psychedelic effects, but still be doing something good. Um, but in terms of deep therapy, I think you really need that trip element. And you want to make sure you don't have a therapist who's just got their head up their ass. You know, you want people who really have experience with these things to help people process what's going on without, you know, laying their own trip on people in an in a inappropriate way. And in this kind of thinking along this line of industry, I know that, you know, you mentioned capitalism before and you're, um, you know, more along the non-commercializing kind of line of thinking. I wonder, yeah. how do you understand the ethics of doing business, you know, with this new psychedelic industry and drugs more broadly? Like, is there is there a, a way that you think is kind of, uh, you know, better or, or more appropriate? I really don't know because it's hard to get away from the capitalist angle because that's just mm. the world we live in, whether we like it or not. Um, mm. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that at all. Um um, I lean towards a peaceful anarchist kind of point of view, much like mm -hmm. David Nichols. Um, that's N I C K L E S, not not the not um, the chemist David Nichols. Yeah, yeah, um, junior, junior. Yeah, um, 
Although, you know, saying that, obviously, I live a life where I benefit from from a capitalist world um, in some ways, but um, I'm I'm definitely not comfortable with it. Um, when a profit motive comes into play, as far as I'm concerned, that fucks things up, especially when you're dealing with something that is essentially sacred and um, you know deeply special and important. Um, bringing the profit motive into that is incredibly unwelcome. Um, but on the other hand, if people are going to develop psychedelic medicines, then, you know, the money is needed for that. That has to come from somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated thing. It's not really my sphere. I tend to um, try and ignore it. <laughs> Every now and then I read about what's going on and get a bit angry and have a bit of a grumble to someone, but it, it's, uh, I feel that's, that's not my fish to fry. It's... Um, if I spend too much time focusing on that, I just get all worked up and angry and not achieve anything. You know, my, my world is more just looking into into natural things and um, their non-commercial uses and trying to um, work against exploitation. Um, but yeah, but by which I mean not exploitation of people per se, but exploitation of plants uh, in a negative conservation sense. Um, capitalism and the profit motive, greed. I mean, these things come into play in the illicit world as well um, with, you know, people harvesting acacias from the wild to make lots of DMT to sell to people. Um, it's not just a, a thing that applies to the legal straight world. Um, but, yeah, I'm deeply uncomfortable with the whole thing and as far as the best way to go forward with that, I really don't know. <laughs> Um, I'll leave that to other people who are more savvy and more inclined to think, spend all their time thinking about that stuff. Well, well, in that case, let's focus on um, some more more plant stuff. I think that's it's what gets me more excited too. And I'm I'm still kind of trying to imagine your you know your pathway or your journey through all of this. And so you know you've tried cannabis. What um, plants did you bio-SA next? How, how did you, you know, how, how, how did you choose what yeah. to explore? Well, next was onto mushrooms and LSD. I mean, LSD obviously is not a natural compound, but it's very close to natural compounds. And um, that's one I give a special free pass to. I mean, I'm not really into powders, powders and synthetics, but um, LSD is a special case. It's people generally refer to it as semi-synthetic. Um, which is a bit of a dubious term, really. I mean, it's either synthetic or it's not. It, it's a synthetic derived from natural compounds, but it's still synthetic. Um, but I think, yeah, that holds a special place in amongst the, uh, uh, alongside natural psychedelics because it's got quite a history of use and we know that it's pretty safe physically. Um, a lot of the newer synthetics, you know, they're just too new to really know how dangerous they are. And a lot of these things obviously have ended up um, killing people through overdose. Some of the things people experiment with are interesting, but they have a much um, much lower level of safety. Um, so, yeah, getting into mushrooms is really the next big step. Um, And were they uh, subs? Yeah, yeah, subs, subs found in found in the wild or you know semi like urban situations. It took a long time for me to really find many. Um, yeah, from smoking 
cannabis the first time to finding my first mushrooms took a while. I mean, the, the first mushrooms I took were picked by friends. Um, mm. This is in the later stages of, you know, I think it was my last year of high school. Um, so, yeah, my first trip was basically a psilocybin overdose. <laughs> oh. Um, well, you know, we're, we're at a party situation at a friend's birthday party and, um, we dosed up beforehand and, you know, I knew all my friends, they, they didn't really want to get that out there. They just wanted to have a bit of something special to enjoy the party on. Whereas I was already deeply curious about these things on a less superficial level than my friends were. And um, I thought, well, if they're only taking so much, then I want to be sure I really feel the effects and really know what's going on here. So I had about, I don't know, three or four times as much as my friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a pretty challenging night. Um, but, you know, I, I came through it fairly unscathed, but I think a lot of people who knew me back then were pretty surprised that I wanted to do it again after that. Um, but yeah, people people who were around me that night, you know, they weren't really that familiar with these things. And um, because I was fairly uncommunicative for much of the night, they just thought that I must have fried my brain and I was just gone, not coming back, hmm. um, which was not really the case. I mean, that them sort of saying these sorts of things while looming over me <laughs> kind of it didn't really help. That, that lent a bit of a negative spin to the trip being peripherally aware of these people discussing, you know, whether I was, um, totally gone. Yeah. Even on a more basic level, someone just asking you, is it working is kind of jarring, let alone people genuinely kind of, you know, putting their worries on you when you're not really in a place to deal with that. Yeah. Very strange night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember bits of it very vividly still all these years later. And, and what about when you moved into experimenting and exploring some of these kind of lesser known plants, uh, like, cause obviously you'd known people you'd, or you'd read of people that had tried cannabis before that had tried mushrooms before, but I, um, I feel, you know, you've done some exploring of some things that, you know, maybe there's an odd reference to someone implying this might be active or, or, or a related plant might be active, um, when did you start trying to find out about some of these lesser known things? Uh, d- depends what you mean by lesser known to some extent. Cause I mean, what might be lesser known to the average person in the street is not so much sure. lesser known, um, to people who are interested in these things. Um, you know, things like fly garrick, um, a bogard, um, angel's trumpet, uh, a, a slightly lesser known to a lot of people. But if you're into this stuff, they're just, things that everyone knows about and then there's a whole other level of things that are really much lesser known um took a long time to get to those so uh, it, it did take a few years to actually find good reading material um so it was just a gradual descent or maybe not a descent <laughs> that's probably not the best choice of words but a <laughs> gradual slide into just finding more and more about these things and getting more into the rabbit hole um so in the earlier years, you know, there were things like um, books by Pete First on, on hallucinogens and culture, um, Plants of the Gods, Legal Highs, 
Um, a little bit later, there's Jim DeCorn's Psychedelic Shamanism. There's um, reprints of uh, Peter Stafford's Psychedelics Encyclopedia. All of those are really fascinating things to read, um, but they, they mainly still only covered you know, the main plants and drugs that most people knew about. So it wasn't really until uh, I think when I finally got a copy of um, Jonathan Ott's Pharmacopian. Hmm. Yeah, that was that was quite an eye opener into the, the larger range of things that were out there. Um, and also that came with a great bibliography. So uh, I, I finally had a foothold in which I could start looking into the academic literature. Because up until then, it was really just what you could find in books or what you could find on the early internet, like on the on the um, alt dot drugs. Um, it wasn't really a discussion forum. I'm not really sure what you called those things back then. Um, but yeah, I was only able to access things like that through f friends at university who'd give me their login so I could go in and use computers and print out all these discussion threads on drugs back in the early to mid 90s. And what do your um, archives look like now? I feel like you've got a, you must have an impressive collection of, um, of texts. Is it all like I assume a bunch is online, but you, do you have a library? Well, yeah, I've got a lot of books, but yeah, my, my files in terms of um, like journal papers and um, things like that, I've, yeah, I've got bulging folders filling, <laughs> filling filing cabinets. And I've got a massive backlog because I'm currently working on revising and updating my book. And um, I'm just so daunted by the huge pile of stuff I've got to work through. It's um, pretty ridiculous. And I these bet. days, the pace of, of uh, information has just accelerated. You know, there's so many journals to try and keep up with new publications. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not just looking out for things like a new paper reporting a well-known psychedelic in a plant. It's, um, it's all the minor chemistry to do with plants that are already on my radar. So try and keep up with that, you know, so that I'm, I can present a more well-rounded picture of what some things contain uh, that's one of the shortcomings of some of the older literature and people publish on these things is they they would say oh this plant was found to contain dmt for example but they wouldn't mention that it might also contain a bunch of other toxic things or things that no one has any idea what they're going to do to you um, so to me that always seemed a little bit irresponsible because people just focus on the bit they want to see and ignore the rest and you still see that on places like the DMT Nexus. You'll have people asking questions about, oh, how much DMT can I get out of this plant? And then you have to point out to them that, well, actually, you know, there's only maybe 0.005% found in that. And there's much larger quantities of all these other alkaloids. You don't know what they're going to do. So if you do an alkaloid extract, you're going to end up with something that's only a tiny proportion of which is DMT. But people don't want to hear that. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to... Um, correct people they they just ignore what they don't want to hear they would much prefer that if they did an alkaloid extract they would just somehow magically just end up with a portion that they want and all the rest would stay behind in the solvent um so yeah i'm concerned people poisoning themselves by um you know as a result of people publishing selective data rather yep. than a, a whole picture and um, in your update of the book, is there? Can you give like a little teaser? Is there any any things that you know you were wanted to correct, kind of as a priority, or information you wanted to include that you felt like you know was at the top of your list? 
Oh, I wouldn't really know where to start. <laughs> and in terms of some things to be corrected, there's already um, there's a couple of Word documents that I put together. Um, there's the Garden of Eden errata. You can download them off the Trout's Notes website for free if you already have the book. If you don't have the book, they won't be that useful to you. Um, mm. But that's that just lists some of the more pressing things that I've noticed since publication, um, yeah, embarrassing mistakes or typos. Um, some of which were a product of just working way too long into the night when I was actually more tired than I realised and just making stupid mistakes. Um, one thing I do, I do really want to correct that's in one of those documents is that um, in my book I mentioned an Australian plant, uh, a sandalwood or quandong um, santalum marianum, the, the chemical and pharmacological data I listed in that, referring to CSIRO's plants for medicines, uh, that was actually from a different plant on the facing page. <laughs> I'm hugely embarrassed by that mistake. But um, yeah, so, so disregard the claim that that plant contains laburnine or, or any of the other stuff I said in regards to the chemistry. Um, most of the other little faults are just, yeah, they're pretty minor things that a lot of people probably wouldn't care about and um, yeah, have very little effect on anything. Um, but, you know, if you're obsessed with details and getting things right, it's more important. So, yeah, I cringe at some of the mistakes I made, but, hey, you know, that's just life. Everyone makes these mistakes. Even some of the biggest and most respected names in this field would publish things that are incorrect because people just fuck up. That's just the way it is. And plus, you know, your work, it's quite a quite a monolithic text, and you largely did it as an independent venture. Like, I think it's... Uh, yeah. You could you can't expect one person to to deal with that. Even if you've got a team of three or four, you're still probably going to come up with errors in the text. It's kind of unavoidable. Yeah, it is. It is hard to avoid. Um, well, I, I guess maybe this is a silly question, considering how overwhelmed you are by the update. But is besides the update of the book, is there anything else you'd like to to write in the future? Uh, gee, I really don't know. I mean, in mm -hmm. terms of this particular topic, I feel like just continually revising that book is sort of never ending this earth to, earth to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, here and there, I've had ideas about other things I'd like to write about that are unconnected to this field, but I don't know if they'll ever really happen. Um, yeah, I guess the, the structure of the book is a good one to continue plugging away at because it's much like an encyclopedia, you know, that's it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, yeah basically. I mean, um, uh, well, at least sticking to this field, there are some things that might get published in terms of, you know, I hope to co-author some journal papers at some stage, um, collaborating with someone to get some plants analysed, so, you know, um, things that haven't been properly looked at that have some intriguing pointers towards making them seem worthwhile. So um, anything not too culturally sensitive discovered hopefully i'll co-author some papers one day but um i'm not really a qualified scientist in any real sense so you know um often co-authors on papers like that they're just people who've contributed in some way but they didn't actually do the bulk of the science um, so my contribution would be you know finding things that are deserving of more attention um helping collect identify plants and preparing them for analysis and then the rest would go over to someone else 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's all it sounds like you are a scientist to me. It's identifying a research gap and filling it. You just need uh, some other nerd to help you write it up for a journal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm a scientist in the sense of of an amateur, you know, in that I have no no qualifications in a um, formal academic sense. But you know, as you know, that doesn't always matter that much. Um, you know, people earn their stripes by just reputation there are a lot of people who are considered experts in their field who don't really have any formal qualifications or at least didn't start out with any uh, so it's not always that important but you know some people think it is <laughs> to me it's never been a priority um, especially when I can see people who are actually qualified who publish things and it's clear to me that they don't really know what they're talking about um, can make you feel a bit smug <laughs> and self-satisfied um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming out in really respected academic journals written by people who have just cobbled something together and they really don't have a deep understanding of the plants they're writing about. They've just done a quick search with Google Scholar and knocked something out in a couple of months. And, um, you know, if you've been looking into that same thing for decades, then it's easy to see these people really have no idea. And there's a lot that they miss and a lot that they misinterpret. So obviously, um, it's going to be changed depending on your specific question. But what's what's your process if you so you've heard about this new you know plant containing a particular drug or that it might contain a particular drug? Obviously, looking on Google Scholar alone isn't enough. What uh, I assume Pharmacotheon is probably a, 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 um, you know a reference list you'd like to review. What else do you have? Do you have kind of some steps that maybe someone else could could draw some inspiration from? Um, well, yeah, uh, I guess if I was uncertain about, um, what was already known about a particular plant, I mean, one of my first steps would be to look on PubMed, for example, to see what might come up in, in, um, journals, but that's not comprehensive. There are some journals that aren't featured on there. Like for example, I don't think the Australian Journal of Chemistry is indexed on PubMed. Um, so it's not perfect. So sometimes you just go to Google, look around, but um, people assume everything's online and it's just not, you know, there's no substitute for actually looking through books, just scaring through things, um, which can involve, you know, spending a lot of time and money tracking down particular books or traveling to go to some library that has something on the shelf that you can't find anywhere else. For example, a, a good place to look is um, books on plants that are poisonous to livestock. There's a lot of info known and published in, in that field that um, is not always to be found in academic journals. Um, it could be a good pointer to see if something is known to cause some kind of poisoning and then that would be an indicator obviously that you should proceed with caution if you're going to try experimenting with something yourself. And in terms of yeah, self-experimentation, you know, real caution is always advised. I mean, when I was a younger guy uh, be more likely to throw caution to the wind experiment with some things that might possibly kill me but i was hoping they wouldn't <laughs> uh, whereas these days i'm a lot more cautious um, but if you are going to try uh, consuming something that you don't know anything about um, yeah firstly try and find out as much about it as you can does it have any known uses by humans has it been eaten by livestock and if so does it do anything bad to them or does it do anything at all? Um, whether things are known to be eaten as foods, 
um, what you can find out about that chemistry and um, you might find that things contain chemicals that are in a class that are known to be potentially dangerous. Um, yeah, proceeding with caution is always a good idea. It's, it's probably better to, well, I mean, people would advise against this, but I'd say smoking a tiny amount of something or just or chewing a tiny amount of something as an initial exposure just to see what happens is a lot safer than boiling something up and drinking it. Because um, I think, yeah, smoking or, or just chewing something orally, it's going to get cleared from your body a lot quicker and you can take a much smaller amount. Uh, it's taking less of a risk. Whereas a lot of people would say smoking unknown things is just stupid. And, well, yeah, it probably is. But realistically, you know, if no one else is doing any any safety studies in a controlled environment, then trying things on yourself if you're curious enough is really the only way to proceed. But you do need to be super careful because the natural world is um, not necessarily all safe. You know, we know for a fact that it's not. There are a lot of really poisonous things out there that can, if not kill you, they can really affect you badly, uh, either in the short term or in the long term. Some things you take, you know, you won't even know that it's a problem until later. For example, you know, um, destroying angel mushrooms. You, know, um, you might think you're okay and then sometime later you have total liver failure and drop dead. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is not a totally safe thing to be doing, you know, just investigating unknown plants. You have to enter into it with some acknowledgement that you're taking risks. And you've um, been relatively hazard-free in your adventures, I I um, hope? Yeah, relatively. And the worst I've had is... is um, being sick as a dog and puking my guts up all night <laughs> or um yeah in terms of psychedelics I mean sometimes you just have a really bad challenging experience that you're not able to deal with it can take some time to get to get over that or to assimilate it hmm. um but yeah generally speaking the psychedelics that we know of are physically pretty safe the risks are mostly psychological and spiritual if you so inclined to believe in that and in um terms of the the you know the more positive side have you is there, is there anything that you've kind of found in your explorations that you know you kind of repeat on the regular or the the semi-regular because you're like oh that that was a good one i um i'm you know i'm glad i found that um nothing that's really unknown um these days um i'm quite a bit older than when I started out investigating these things and I'd, I'd take psychedelics, for example, much less than I used to. Back in my late teens and through my 20s and um, sometime in my 30s, I would generally trip on something at least once a week. Uh, these days, it's sometimes rarely even once a year, um, partly because it can be hard to find time to fit things into your life. You know, if you have a, an active, rich life, um, you've always got lots of things going on. And it's just hard to find the time where you, you can set aside 24 hours or so to be basically unproductive in the sense that there's, there's things that need to be written about or things you need to read. Um, you can't really do that while you're tripping. 
Well, you could try, but I mean, it's probably <laughs> a waste of time because you'll need to reread it a little later. <laughs> um, and and the other reason is because I guess the more you do things, if you're actually paying attention, there's less need to do it. And I think if if you keep taking psychedelic drugs just for the sake of it, or for or just purely for enjoyment, um, that's going to end up having a negative effect um, in the long term. So yeah, as I get older, I feel like I'm only going to going to take a psychedelic if I really feel a need or a calling to do so. If I have if I have some problem I need to to work through or need more insight into something, or even sometimes just to, just to just to do it to check in and just realign yourself and um, ground yourself again, you know, because the the modern world we live in can just screw people up and um, sometimes you need to remind yourself what's really real and special and what matters and psychedelics can be a way to do that. Hmm. And um, I'm not sure if I actually answered the question properly. <laughs> no, no, well, you know, you to, to some degree, I think we, we answered it relative to psychedelics, but I guess um, I know you, you are a connoisseur of nicotine, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would like to give up smoking at least at some point. And I know, you know even taking it um, by other routes can still lead to negative health outcomes. Um, definitely smoking tobacco is one of the worst things you can do with it. <laughs> I do like nicotine, but I'm very aware that it has a strong addictive grip on me. And um it is one of the most addictive drugs out there. Um, and so, yeah, it's something I, I approach with caution, respect. But um, it's only in more recent years that I've become a little bit more appreciative of it in the, um, t by taking other routes such as um, snuffing um, rape, for example. It's very different to what you feel from smoking it generally and um, much more pleasurable in a lot of ways. Um, but on the other hand, blasting highly alkalinized powder up your nose on a regular basis is not a good thing, you know, even if the, the tobacco component were completely safe. Um, just blasting things into your nasal passages that are so alkaline is bound to be you know, detrimental. <laughs> I just don't understand people who do that um, every day quite a lot, you know, the effect it must be having on the nasal passages must be horrendous. When you hear about people who use, take too much cocaine and, you know, the, the insides of their noses would just get totally eroded. Um, I mean, that's just messed up. Um, I don't know if there's been any real long-term studies on people doing that with tobacco snuffs. Most of the commercial tobacco snuffs are not that alkaline. Yeah. They're mainly just tobacco. The sheer quantity of material just as a long-term practice, it's uh, its not particularly refined in, in tobacco form. Like, is there a lot of stuff going up your nose? Yeah, I mean, commercial tobacco is generally, yeah, full of all sorts of shit. But usually things that the tobacco is soaked in to give it um, extra flavour and aroma. Um, I wouldn't really recommend snuffing that stuff. I think if, you, if you're going to be snuffing stuff that's um, not something you've bought from people who make it themselves who know what they're doing um it should be you know, stuff that's cultivated with no additives but obviously in australia cultivating tobacco without a license is highly illegal you know it's treated as though you're growing cannabis or um running an opium poppy factory or something you know it's treated as really bad 
which I think has a lot more to do with uh, the uh, tax avoidance than anything else. It's kind of ironic that, you know, we're getting fed all this anti-tobacco stuff and people want to move towards basically making it illegal to buy tobacco if you were born after a certain date. But at the same time, they the governments and the police proxies vigorously defend the um, the tax income that governments get from legal sales of tobacco by cracking down so hard on um, unlicensed growers. I'd love it if we had a situation like in, in the United States where people were allowed to grow tobacco for personal use and it's just not a problem. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about growing fields of the stuff to, to sell. I'm just, you know, if people want to grow their own tobacco just to use themselves because it's virtually impossible to get additive-free tobacco in this country. And and would it you be... You order would, it illegally from overseas and would, hope that the customs don't take it. Would the, that be your preference? Like if you, you know, in a, in a dream world where you can grow whatever plants you want, tobacco would be your, your choice for nicotine? Just because I'm thinking of your your EGA article with all the, um, all the, you know, potential substitutes. I'm wondering, are there any that uh, appeal to you or you'd still, you'd prefer old trusty tobacco? Uh, well, the substitutes that I've tried, are, you know, they have variable um, attributes. Some of them are nicer than others in terms of smoking um, or, or even chewing. But um, the majority of those, you know, other, other than the lesser known nicotiana species i mean none of them really are nicotine containers so in, in terms of a preferred source of nicotine then yes i'd much prefer to be able to grow my own tobacco legally and to use that as i wish hmm. um but in terms of the substitutes yeah none of them are really nicotine containers I mean, it's, it's quite likely that nicotine is found in a vast array of, of plants but just in tiny amounts it's very close to nicotinic acid, which is found in you know, almost anything, it seems. <laughs> so it wouldn't surprise me if there are trace amounts of nicotine in most plants. But in terms of the higher levels found in tobaccos, uh, um, yeah, none of those substitutes really compare. There are some that have similar effects, things that contain like labelline or cytosine, for example. But in general, people don't find them as enjoyable. You know, they, they give you the same neurochemical satisfaction to some extent in terms of stopping cravings and giving you some nicotine-like effects, but they're generally not as uh, enjoyable. Of course, not everyone enjoys the effects of nicotine, um, and a lot of it's dose-dependent and also dependent on the method of administration. And in um, other plants that are, you know, containers of other things, I'm thinking um, DMT specifically, is the container so important to you when the final product tends to be processed? Like, I'm wondering, if is it important uh, yeah. to you what acacia your DMT was made from? Besides, obviously, um, you know, not an endangered species and a and a cultivated plant. Yeah, to me, that's important. I don't like seeing these plants as purely containers for a desirable drug. Uh, it really bothers me when people reduce plants to just the chemical they're known for containing. To me, the plant is the most important thing. Um, in terms of smoked DMT, I mean, it's not something I, I, I do that much. If, if I, I delve into those realms, I, I find it's much more um, useful to take orally in some preparation with an MAO inhibitor. Um, it's a much richer experience that 
last longer and it's dialed back enough so that you can actually get more out of it. I think um, a lot of people who smoke from DMT or, you know, or acacia extracts that contain DMT, um, yeah, they, they're going through experiences that come on so quickly and so strongly and then um, in, in real world terms they, they wear off so quickly although it can feel like much longer when you're in there but um, I really question what, what a lot of people are really getting out of that and to what extent people are treating it like a recreational drug. Um, to me these things, you know, they can be very enjoyable especially in lower doses. Um, in, in a recreational sense, whilst, whilst still being, you know, spiritually potent, sacred stuff. Um, but yeah, with, with the higher sort of what people call breakthrough doses from smoking the stuff, um, it's rare that I hear someone relating their experience about what they got from it that really seems to make much sense to me. It seems that people, a lot of people are using it as some kind of escapist sort of thing. They, they wouldn't like to admit it, but when people describe to me what they're getting out of it, it seems that whatever insights they're supposedly getting are pretty vague and insubstantial, and it seems to me that people are using that as an excuse because they enjoy the experience, which is kind of ironic because back in the 60s and 70s when um, people were less used to something that powerful, um, DMT was not a popular drug. It was just too much too soon. Yeah, it was... Um, not something that many people liked whereas these days it seems like collectively people have just gotten more used to that kind of thing and they're more able to take that and enjoy it as a recreational experience and sure it feels special to them and they have you know spiritual experiences and they get some insight but <clears throat> it's rare that people are actually able to relate anything to relating what they got out of it Whereas you do see that much more with ayahuasca or preparations like that made with acacias um, along with an MAO inhibiting plant. Um, people are much more likely to actually be able to explain what they learned from it <laughs> in, in, in a tangible sense. What's your preferred MAO inhibitor for working with acacia? Uh, I would say... Syrian rue is pretty good just in that it's really pretty potent and for a lot of people it's probably easier to get than carpe vine. Um, that, 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 they're both great. They both have um, a lot of good points about them. But I'd love it if we could learn more about whatever native plants in Australia might have the same sort of effect, things that we don't know about yet and preferably things that are common enough for people to be able to use without it being an ecological problem. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think there's a lot still to be discovered in this country in that regard. But but yeah, if people have uh, Banisteriopsis available or if they can get Syrian root seeds, then yeah, both of those are great. Um, problem is that, yeah, if you use Syrian root seeds, just make sure you filter the extract really well <laughs> because when that comes back up, you know, you don't want those tiny seed fragments coated with puke to be lining your throat and nostrils. <laughs> it's very unpleasant to have to have that hanging around for the whole trip. Uh, that's probably less of a problem with Banisteriopsis. Hmm. Banisteriopsis in this country, you know, in more sort of tropical and subtropical parts of the country that grows quite well. And uh, I've heard it can even, you know, get a bit weedy and become problematic. But if people are using it enough, then... Hopefully that's not a big deal in terms of its environmental impact.
the Syrian Rue is also a, a weed in some more arid parts of Australia, but um, I've heard conflicting things about whether or not it um, sets seed that much here or what, how much it might be spreading vegetatively through roots under the ground. Um, but certainly the seeds have been pretty easy to obtain up until relatively recently anyway. I think it's probably um, an import that's being more watched these days because these things are becoming more popular. And uh, so I'm imagining uh, you've got, because I'm kind of curious, what what is your uh, acacia species of, of choice? Say you've got um, some medenii, some longifolia, some obtusifolia, uh, acuminata. Which which do you choose if you you know you're you're just looking to have um, you know a, a good experience? Um. Yeah, that's something I'd probably rather not say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I get a bit defensive about um, the way acacia's being treated. Basically, it's just a DMT resource, and I don't want some of these things to end up becoming threatened or to, to get too sure. much attention, really. Um, to recommend particular species uh, is not something I'd want to do. But also, I'm not sure that it's that important. As long as you have a species that contains decent enough levels of the alkaloids you're looking for you know they're all they're all great they all have their, their advantages um i wouldn't say there's particularly one that's better than others you know some of them can be different when some species contain pretty much just dmt with traces of any other alkaloids whereas others contain more of an interesting mix and that can also change at different times of the year so sometimes of the year, some species contain pretty much nothing, whereas other times they're quite useful. Um, so there's a lot of var uh, variation going on there, but I think they're all special and wonderful, and I wouldn't want to recommend any one over any other one. Mm, great, great. But uh, and and you don't obviously have to speak of a particular name, but I'm just wondering, would you choose? A particular species because there was something you were seeking at a time like you know you you know you want to use a tool for this job but you want to use a hammer for another job i'm just wondering uh yeah is it is it is that is the species kind of come into you making that choice or is it maybe more about the specific plant that maybe you already have a relationship with with the particular tree in question um, a bit of both, yeah, but I mean, there's so much that we don't know about Australian acacias and their chemical content. Um, I couldn't honestly say that I have enough experience with enough different species in terms of consuming them to really um, be able to say this one's good for this and this one's good for that. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm probably the wrong person to be asking for that. Although I deeply love these plants, you know, there are people out there who've actually consumed them way more than me. Um, uh, I, I'm more interested in learning more about them and protecting them and even just being around them at this stage. Um, I don't really feel the need to actually consume these things that much these days. I feel like it's kind of superfluous and I'll just be doing it for the sake of it rather than because I feel that I need to. Um, yeah yeah that's good age who continue who are doing these things like every week i really wonder like what are you doing that for like are you really so thick skulled that you have <laughs> that you still haven't found what you're looking for um from 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 my own perspective one good strong experience could be enough to feed you for the rest of your life 
And so I'm, I'm a bit sort of wary of people who just are doing this kind of stuff all the time. I think there's kind of something wrong with them. <laughs> sure, sure. I've heard the analogy like um, you've got the message, why are you still on the phone? Yeah. I mean, there are different messages. It's not like there's just one message you get, but yeah, sometimes or sometimes you might need to go back to get a reminder. Um, yeah, I feel like we're living in an age where people would just so blase and take things for granted to such an extent that they, they expect to be just walloped over the head with something and, and they kind of need to be for them to even get any kind of message, whereas I think people need to learn more about how to um, pay attention to subtleties and just, just really listen to what something's trying to tell you rather than have it totally pushed in your face to even recognize there's something there you know people are always looking for the most powerful experience but with you know with you, you don't necessarily need that and sometimes that can be a detriment to actually um, following what's being presented to you there's so much going on that um you know it's just it's too overwhelming and you can't really extract a useful message from it um whereas if yeah as I said in the little EGA micro dose presentation I recorded a while ago, you know, if you just learn to pay attention to the subtleties, just just sit and open your eyes and ears and your heart. Um, yeah, you can get a lot more out of lower doses of things. Do you have any um, stories of uh, maybe a time that you've received a message of any sort? I'm I'm often trying to wonder, like what plant communication looks like and, and what that looks like to different people. Yeah, I mean, I have had experiences of that sort, but um, they're generally so personal that I would be reluctant to really discuss them on a podcast. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, but but even, even in the sense of moving beyond pure purely plant things like naturally occurring substances that can be made synthetically like 5-methoxy DMT for example is, is is a good example these days you know toad venom is very popular largely you know to the detriment of the wild populations of these toads or even captive populations I mean the act of collecting venom is not um it's not a warm and cuddly pleasant thing to do to a toad you are stressing the fuck out of them um so yeah, if you really love these toads, you should find alternatives, preferably. Um, but some people have this idea that natural is always best and that um, they don't want to try synthetic 5-methoxy-DMT because um, because it doesn't have that special toad magic, whilst at the same time ignoring the harm they're doing to the toads in getting that venom. Um, it's trickier these days because there was a bit of a loophole where 5-methoxy-DMT was perfectly legal to buy in the United States for a long, long time, and that finally got closed. Uh, so it is harder to get synthetic 5-methoxy-DMT. But I've tried it, and um, that was one of the most intense, deep, spiritually rewarding experiences of my life. And I haven't tried the Buffalo Various Venom to compare personally. Um, but I don't think there's any detriment going on there. Um, I have, you know, a, uh, a warm feeling towards connecting with the spirit of the toad, but I wouldn't want to do so I'm harming that toad, but I don't feel like there was anything lacking in the experience I had with the synthetic 5-methoxy, um, that would make me think, oh, no, that didn't really do it for me. I need to get the real natural stuff. Um, that synthetic experience was 
incredible. Um, see, I, I think people using those excuses to just focus on using toad venom preferentially is really misguided on a lot of levels. Um, so yeah, in terms of what I got out of that, um, basically I, I felt like I was taken to the point of beyond death where um, I was shown you know, where everything returns to once, once you leave your body, pass to the next realm and um, before, you know, being reformed and coming back again. And it really took away my fear of death and removing that fear of death can be an incredible thing in just making you feel liberated and free to just live your life and do what's important because you know that um, everyone dies sooner or later and it's, it's completely natural and actually quite beautiful if you embrace it. And um, resisting that or feeling fearful or bad about it is um, something that hold a lot of people back and make them scared to really live their lives. Mm, that's a nice message. Hmm. I uh, I think I've done a, a good job in uh, not bringing up cactus yet, but naturally I must. Uh, yeah. What are your feelings on San Pedro, peyote, mescaline, non-mescaline cacti even? Well, they're meaningful we're very to you in this country and that we can grow peyote legally um, you, you can't consume it legally <laughs> um, but the fact that we're allowed to grow it um, I mean there are many parts of the world you can grow it and the United States is one of the exceptions unfortunately in terms of San Pedro I mean I think that those are much more practical things for people to take in the sense that they are very fast growing very hardy plants that can regenerate from damage quite well um, they they really got a lot of, lot of life in them um, whereas peyote has to be treated much more carefully. Um, you don't want to kill the plants and they grow very, very slowly. I used to know someone who used to go and buy small nursery plants of peyote and just consume them straight away, um, which mm. really pissed me off. And it just seemed really wasteful because um, I thought if you really want to engage with these plants, you should spend a bit of time actually growing them. And the things you did generally get from nursery growers they're really not very old and the alkaloid content improves and matures as they get older much like you know a fine wine i guess um taking young plants it's part of the problem the native american church faces because um there's so much over collection going on and um the resources becoming scarcer through a variety of factors um that are not all related to over harvesting um also land clearing and feral goats and stuff like that have a huge impact but um people are largely nowadays using lots of really immature buttons and um you would need much more of those to get a really good effect and um seems wasteful whereas yeah, people have more patience and did the ceremony less often and hopefully there would be um an ability to be able to harvest more mature plants without it being a problem I've actually forgotten what the question was now. So if you could remind me and then I'll yeah. try and answer it properly. No worries. Well, really, I was just wanting your kind of general feelings on, yeah, peyote, San Pedro and mescaline and and potentially on other cactus. Just, you know, what they what they mean to you in your world of plants. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, cacti and acacias are really some of my favourite groups of organisms. Um, I've really focused a lot on those. Um, with with cacti, I mean, yeah, there are probably people out there who experiment way more with lots of different things. Um, the 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 trichocereus species that I've experimented with myself is pretty narrow. There's been many things I've been meaning to get around to trying. Generally, I've experimented only with uh, Papinoy and Scopulacola. Oh, well, um, no spikes for you. Experimenting with Scopulacola back in the early 90s, um, that was something that there was no published literature saying that they contained mescaline. It was actually uh, myself and other people I knew were taking them more as a case of mistaken identity because we hadn't realised that there wasn't actually Papinoy. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, people um, had demonstrated the um the effectiveness of that species before it was really documented um, although some people in other parts of the country were skeptical about that i think because the plants they'd used were maybe not as strong or they simply hadn't taken enough but um the stuff that i was experimenting with some of it was pretty potent indeed whereas others were very weak hmm. uh, it's hard to generalize but um there was an orthodox belief amongst some people that that species was only useful as a stimulant. Whereas, yeah, I absolutely would beg to differ. I've had many powerful psychedelic experiences on that. And um, of course, unlike peyote, you know, mescaline is the by far the main alkaloid in those plants. And um, I do feel mescaline is a very special psychedelic. It's just a little bit unfortunate that it's relatively weak in terms of its potency by volume in that you need quite a large amount of it to get to that level. So um, I think that's led to some people kind of being somewhat dismissive of of the um, the usefulness of mescaline-containing cacti as teacher plants compared to ayahuasca or other things, and I think that's really misfounded. Um, I think it's just because those people saying things like that haven't actually taken high enough doses to really appreciate what's there. Um, but it, Definitely powerful teacher, really wonderful stuff. Um, some people have a notion that mescaline or mescaline-containing cacti pretty much only lead to positive experiences. I've certainly had some very challenging, <laughs> unpleasant experiences, uh, but they've been outweighed by the more positive ones. Um, but yeah, special stuff, but it takes some fortitude to actually ingest, especially if you're using a, a cactus extract which I much prefer to do rather than uh, any kind of more purified alkaloid. Um, it's extremely bitter, nasty tasting stuff. You know, I can't see it ever becoming a really a, much of a recreational thing, which is probably a good thing. Um, sort of weeds out the poses a little bit by mm. being quite hard to take. Because also once you consume it, you have to keep it down for one or two hours before, before you will most likely throw up. I mean, you don't always puke, but um, often significant nausea and vomiting is definitely a part of that. But once you get that out of the way, it's um, the physical load disappears and you have, you know, 10 to 12 hours or more of um, quite a remarkable time, hopefully. <laughs> but it, obviously it is illegal to do that in this country. Um, so yeah, all of these things I'm talking about happened on a, uh, as I said before, it's hard to find the time as you get older, especially for something like, uh, like mescaline that has quite a long duration and then you're 
rather sleep deprived at the end of it. You need a day or two afterwards to catch up. So it's not just setting aside 24 hours or so. You have to set aside a few days to really um, have time to recuperate after that. It can be quite draining because of its duration. Yeah, integration is more than just a conversation. Yeah. And yeah, even besides integration, just the physical recovery, just from the exhaustion, <laughs> it can, yeah. can take a while. And um, for anyone listening that just wanted to, you know, support you in your plant journey, how is there any way they can do that? You're you're a mysterious man. You're hard to find. <laughs> oh well, yeah, I don't know that I'm that hard to find. I mean, um, yeah, my contact details are on the Trout's Notes website. Um, for a while I was selling a PDF of my book through there because the physical books are long gone and people keep asking me, you know, more than a decade later, have you still got some physical books tucked away that you'd sell me? And it's like, it's, uh, I say quite clearly on the website that they're all long gone. So I wish people <laughs> would stop asking that. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the, the links to, to sell that through the website. Uh, the PDF that is, uh, they sort of stopped working. Payloads ended up screwing me over and just froze my account. So I just uh. I took the links down for that. Um, I think they were just trying to get me to upgrade to get more money out of me. Because um, as it is, you know, I'm, I'm selling the PDF for very cheaply. It's only $12 Australian. And when I was selling the actual book, that was $100 plus postage. Um, and I've heard secondhand copies go for thousands of dollars these days, none of which benefits me. But the PDF, 100. you know, I try to be pretty reasonable with the pricing so it's accessible to anyone. Um, but people have bootlegged it. There's, there are sites where you can download it for nothing. And so a lot of people come to me and thank me for putting up that there for free, not realising that that's totally not authorised <laughs> by me. Um, I did have a kind of unique copyright thing inside the physical book saying, you know, if you want to, like photocopy to share with your friend privately that's fine but you know i didn't want people putting it up on the internet just for anyone to grab for free or or anyone trying to sell it whilst cutting me out of the equation mm. um but, so i don't know to what extent some people just misinterpreted that and thought that it's okay to share it for free um without asking me or if uh, i imagine more likely people are just doing it anyway because that's what happens these days on the internet I can live with that to some extent, but the person who, who scanned a physical copy of the book and is actually trying to sell it themselves through some website, that really pisses me off. And I've tried to have this taken down, but the website just ignore you. Um, despite whatever claims they may make about taking things down when asked, it's just complete bullshit. So if anyone does want to support me, if you want to buy a PDF of the book, you can email me at um, snu.v.goe at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, I use PayPal. So yeah, it's just $12 Australian through PayPal and then I'll, I'll email you the PDF. Um, but bear in mind, anyone trying to get in touch with me through that, um, I may not answer immediately. Sometimes it can be two weeks or more between me checking my emails. So, um, yeah, please be patient, uh, but I will get back to you. If I did actually receive your email, I will get back to you. <laughs> Uh, it just yeah. might take a while. So, yeah, that's the only way to really help support me other than, um, you know, I don't know, if there's anyone out there who wants to take it upon themselves to um, try and get these other people to take down the illegal copies, 
I just I just don't have the headspace to engage in that. It just gets me worked up and tense. And um, yeah, living in Australia, it's hard to get much done about that. If I was living in America, it would be easy illegally to do something about that. But um, yeah, it's just more trouble than it's worth for me. I'd have to try and get lawyers involved, and I can't afford that. The amount of money we're talking about, me losing, is pretty negligible. But as it is, you know, I make hardly any PDF sales. Probably losing a lot to to the illegal downloads. Um, you know, I'm lucky to get maybe ten bucks a month out of selling the PDF. <laughs> And sometimes not even that so yeah just buying the pdf is helpful to me it gives me i mean it's not like it sustains my life or anything but it gives me a little bit of pocket money to spend which is nice yeah and i i think supporting you is a very worthy effort and I, i'm sure you the free time that you have you put into more obscure plant projects which i hope in time we all get to read about so yeah i um i fully endorse supporting you in any way that we can i um yeah i would love to encourage you to put more time and energy into plants wherever possible because um i just yeah. love hearing well, about it i certainly am doing that you know i am working on revising and updating garden of eden that will eventually come out as a as a hardcover second edition and um yeah, that should make the first edition pale in comparison. But that will be quite a long way off because, as I mentioned earlier, I've got a huge backlog of stuff to work through with the updates. And I'm trying to be much more rigorous in um, double-checking things and following things to their source, and that takes a lot of time uh, to get into that level of detail when I'm trying to cover so many hundreds and hundreds of different species. It takes a long time, so... Um, yeah, so in the meantime, the PDF's available, but one day there will be a bigger and better book out there. Um, I just don't know when that will happen. <laughs> It'll be years away, to say the least. I don't know how many years, though. Oh, well, I can't wait. I can't wait. I look forward to reading it. And um, yeah, if you're ready for when you're ready for a copy editor, let me know. Let me know um, if I can uh, encourage you. I will, because yeah, can't wait to read it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait to read it either. <laughs> Part of the reason I started doing this kind of work in terms of writing a book was um, it started out just taking notes for myself um, so that I could have all the info that I discovered in the right place, no, sorry, in the one place, rather than having to refer to numerous different books and articles or um, old internet threads. Um, and that gradually turned into something where I thought, hang on, this shouldn't just be for me. I mean, other people will want to read this as well. So then I started getting more serious about it. But yeah, it really did just start from me just trying to collate information for my own, for my own entertainment and interest. Um, and yeah, now it's become an all-consuming obsession that takes up a lot of my time. And um, I'm very happy about that. Certainly, um, my life would be bit more boring without without that interest going on well i'm grateful i think it's a public service thank you very much oh, thank you cool well i think um i've covered pretty much all my questions uh is there anything that you know you want to you want to sign out with or, or cover while we're while we're still here uh I'm not sure. I guess all I can think of to say is just um, anyone out there who's interested in psychoactive plants, um, yeah, please try and think of them as plants that are organisms in their own right that you can have a relationship with. Don't just reduce them to whatever interesting alkaloid they might contain. 
um, you know, I just encourage people to really engage with the natural world in a respectful um, and um, conservationally minded way. And um, yeah, if you're not already on that path, um, I think you'll discover it to be very rewarding. So yeah, gotta love the plants and take care of them because you know our natural world is getting fucked up at an unbelievable rate and um, if we don't look out for these things, one day they'll just be gone. I really like how Snoo talks about plants. Thanks to him for joining us and thanks to you for tuning in. Don't forget to check the podcast description for links to the books and other resources we discussed. I'd previously mentioned that there was an upcoming podcast featuring cactus breeder and author Patrick Knoll, but sadly I've got to renege on this. We're worried that for Patrick being associated with the Mescaline Garden title is too risky. It could create problems for Patrick's work and collection in Germany. So, we're going to do a video instead of the intended podcast and put it on the EGA YouTube channel EntheoTV instead. This is the same channel where you can find Snooze Microdose presentation and a bunch of my other work, including a presentation I've just released about designing drug combination charts and the entheogen combination matrix. I've also recently released an article about patenting psychedelic medicines and the hate directed at Compass Pathways. I'm not saying Compass's approach has been entirely ethical, but neither of the approaches of other businesses creating psychedelic medicines, or of other businesses making medicines, or of other businesses in general. For me, a core personal value is drug reform, and part of this is seeing drugs as neutral, rather than good or bad. I want to encourage the view that psychedelics aren't better than other drugs. I don't think focusing on the industry of psychedelic medicine will resolve much social injustice, rather, psychedelic medicine seems more like a distraction. Focusing on decriminalizing and legalizing drug markets, on the other hand? Now that might be a good idea. Sorry to keep you waiting on a bunch of other stuff I mentioned in the previous episode. There's also another work in progress coming out soon on Carpi, uh, and that addresses the discussion about DMT acacia and the possibility of an indigenous Australian ayahuasca analogue. I'll keep you posted. Anyway, if you want to help support this podcast or my ethnobotanical exploits, please check out the Mescaline Garden shop or donate at buymeacoffee.com forward slash mescaline garden.